Last Sunday, as part of reflecting on the Easter story from a 21st century perspective, I shared a challenge that we heard a few years ago from the evolutionary evangelist Michael Dowd. He says that instead of dating the most significant turning point in history as B.C., as in before Christ, we should start thinking in terms of B.C. as before Copernicus. 500 years ago, Copernicus presented reason, logic, and data demonstrating that Earth is not the center of the universe. And in the ensuing centuries, science has continued to invite us to see that our human species is merely a tiny part of a much larger universe story that has been evolving for more than 13.8 billion years across more than 2 trillion galaxies, trillion with a T. Along these lines, yesterday, two buses carrying more than 100 passengers departed our parking lot to attend the March for Science in D.C. Thank you, Nick, and as well as Sandy Smithgill for helping organize, as well as everyone who attended. Another busload will head to D.C. this Saturday for the People's Climate March in D.C. In both cases, I know there were local sibling marches as well that, that many of you helped organize and attend. But before the scientific revolution, it was more reasonable to maintain that humans are the point of creation, why, that we're the reason anything is here at all, and that everything was really about us and our salvation. But both the Science March and the Climate March are recent protests against this human-centric perspective that disregards scientific data and denies the threat of human-caused climate change. We humans are not the center of the universe, and when we act like we are, we wreak havoc on this beautiful but fragile planet. In the 1980s, an ecologist coined the term Anthropocene. So think anthropology, right? Words, anthropos, logos, words about humanity. Anthropocene is anthropos and then seen like age, so the age of humans, to highlight the ways that we humans may well be on our way to creating a new geologic time period in which we are the dominant force shaping the geology of this planet. There's actually a committee who decides such things. Uh, so the Stratography Commission of the Geological Society of London, they're the ones that decide what geologic ages are and where the, the lines are. They've taken the matter under advisement, but they're in, not in any rush. After all, we're talking geologic time here. Uh, from about 2.5 million years ago, way up until just 12 thousand years ago, our planet was in the Pleistocene Epoch, often called the Ice Age. So starting about 12,000 years ago until today, we've been in the Holocene Epoch. And to give just one example of the vast spans of time that have to be accounted for when you're speaking geologically, during that entire 12 millennia length of the Holocene, plate tectonics, so Laura showed you Pangaea earlier when the continents were together and then they slowly drifted apart. During the entirety of that 12,000-year Holocene period, plate tectonics has driven the continents about half a mile. Just about half a mile. So most of us could move the scale of millennia-long planetary change in the matter of a few minutes. 
So geologically, the major force shaping Earth most recently in the last century or two has not been plate tectonics. It's been the lifestyle of one particular species of the animal kingdom, Homo sapiens, us. Astonishingly, the world population of we human beings has increased sevenfold over the past two centuries. In around 1800, there were about a billion of us. Today, there are more than seven billion of us. One billion, 1800, seven plus billion, two centuries later, with no signs of stopping anytime soon. But I invite you to consider that before we get too excited, you may or may not actually be that excited, about the possibility of that term Anthropocene helping us wrestle with the long-term consequences of human behavior on this planet, I would invite you to consider that that name Anthropocene ironically continues to center humanity in perhaps an unhelpful and even inaccurate way if you're speaking in geologic time. As some ecologists have noted, you know, we actually don't name geologic eras after the destructive force that created them. We, we didn't name the time of the dinosaurs the asteroidic. Even, even if an asteroid is suspected of having ended the Cretaceous period, um, we didn't name the period after the Permian the supervolcanic, even though it is the, you know, the ash from the supervolcano that cooled the earth and, and created a, a geologic um, time change. The truth is that from the perspective of geologic time, as destructive as that asteroid and that volcano respectively were, both of them soon, from the perspective of geologic time, sank into the earth so that it wasn't the asteroid itself or the volcano itself that became the dominant force. They just caused the change. So it may well be that we humans continue to cause extreme climate change to this planet before eventually sinking into the earth, leaving few long-term remnants of our civilization. Think about every dystopian uh, movie that's, that shows some form of New York City. What happens? Pretty rapidly it's covered in vines and nature begins to, to take back the earth. At this point, the question is really not whether climate change is going to happen. It's already happening. The question is how much worse are we going to make it? Both the March for Science and the People's Climate March call us to heed the warnings of science, to seek to build our economy not on the alleged bottom line of profit alone, but to account for a triple bottom line that balances people, planet, and profit. Profit's still in there, but forced to account for. You can't just externalize your impact on people and the planet. That needs to be accounted for in your bottom line. Along these lines, the environmental philosopher Kathleen Dean Moore says that, you know, it took us a long time to add increasingly large warning labels on cigarettes so that if you do smoke them, that's your choice, but you know what you're signing up for. She says, we need to start adding warning labels to our thermostats, to our gas tanks, to, all, you know, to airplanes, so that all these ways that we use fossil fuels, saying, warning, fossil fuels are addictive. Warning, fossil fuels can harm your children. Burning fossil fuels can cause fatal lung disease and cancer. Warning, burning fossil fuels during pregnancy can harm your baby, directly through pollution or indirectly by damaging the planet's life-giving systems that will sustain that small person into the future. Warning, burning fossil fuels can kill you. And so far, in tandem with, destructive, with habitat destruction, has killed 40% of planet and animals on Earth. 
Warning, burning fossil fuels causes harm even to those who cannot afford to burn them. Secondhand fossil fuels, right? <laughs> Warning, quitting fossil fuels now greatly reduces serious risk to your health, to the health of the planet, and to the death of future generations. Or to quote the winner of the 1995 Nobel Prize for Chemistry for the discovery that chlorofluorocarbons contribute to ozone depletion, he said, what is the use of having developed a science well enough to make predictions if in the end all we're willing to do is sit around and watch them coming true? Of course, it doesn't help that climate change denial is on the ascendancy in our government. Moreover, science itself, it's important to note, is not neutral. Even as science keeps getting better at predicting the causes and the coming effects of climate change, science is also getting increasingly better at extracting fossil fuels, you know, the coal and oil and gas that contribute to climate change in the first place. We need to use the power of science wisely. And climate scientists tell us that that red line that we're seeking to avoid crossing is pushing average global surface temperatures any higher than two degrees Celsius over the pre-industrial average before the 18th century industrial revolution, because that's the point in the 1700s when we started pumping carbon into the atmosphere at previously unprecedented rates. So if we think about humanity's carbon budget, as it were, as the amount of carbon we can burn and stay under that hopefully two degree Celsius threshold, then experts tell us about 80% of the world's valued fossil fuels reserves need to stay in the ground, 80%. That's a pretty um, hard bar to cross. I mean, I said for years, I'm not sure if this is true, I'm not actually convinced we'll leave a single percent in the ground, but uh, I hope that is not the case. It's a major challenge for us to value the long-term health of people and this planet over short-term profit. At the same time, I don't want to overemphasize financial costs. That's part of what inhibits us from creating change, because we have records in countries like Australia and Germany who are prime examples of how you can lead in economic growth and in environmental responsibility. What we truly cannot afford is to continue allowing companies to rake in short-term fossil fuels, uh, by short-term profits by burning fossil fuels without forcing those same companies to account for the long-term impact on people and planet. We also need to incentivize the transition to an environmentally responsible green economy. Looking to the future, I think solar and wind will certainly be part of the equation. Uh, they're particularly disruptive because once you make the initial input, wind and you know you don't have to pay for the fuel, right? Wind and um, the sun they come free if we harness them. Uh, responsibly use nuclear power may also be part of how we fuel the future. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation around nuclear and it's been used irresponsibly in the past. There are ways to use it responsibly, though I will certainly say we haven't found exactly how we're going to deal with that highly radioactive waste that stays radioactive for uh, you know, thousands of years. Along the lines of innovating a new way forward, I was interested to see a headline a few weeks ago that the electric car maker Tesla passed Ford in market value for the first time. That's a remarkable shift that could not have been anticipated a few decades ago. Some techno-utopians hope that innovations in what is called geoengineering, so engineering around um, the Earth, that geoengineering may allow us to either remove carbon from our atmosphere or reduce its effect. One popular idea involves injecting sulfur into the atmosphere to reflect more of the sun's rays back out. 
There could be serious unintended consequences, though, from both that and from other similar um, ideas along those lines. Another fascinating idea is covering 9% of the world's oceans in seaweed farms to absorb the carbon dioxide and then sinking those to the bottom of the ocean. Because even once you do that, you still have to do something with the carbon, right? It has to go somewhere. Uh, the, if you're interested in learning more about the various ways that geoengineering might help our climate crisis, Google the Virgin Earth Challenge. The Virgin Earth Challenge. In 2007, an entrepreneur offered a $25 million prize for anyone who could submit a commercially viable design which achieves or appears capable of achieving the net removal of significant um, volumes of what they call anthropogenic, right? So that's that anthropos again, so human-caused, genesis from humans, anthropos, genos. So anthropogenic uh, atmospheric greenhouse gases each year for about, for at least 10 years. So far, 11 promising finalists have been selected, but none are yet sufficiently commercially viable to meet all the criteria to win. So there's some real reasons for hope, even as other signs look quite bleak. In researching this sermon, I was particularly struck by a passage from the 2017 book um, After Nature, A Politics for the Anthropocene. It's from a law professor named uh, Jedediah Purdy, which is a great, a great name. He sort of wrestles with this tension, so I invite you to hear this. He, uh, I'll read you just a paragraph from his book. He says, I still feel a little thrill of reverence whenever I see an image of the Earth from space. Can you see that picture? It's that famous 1968 picture called Earthrise where you, you see the surface of the moon and then over it that big floating blue marble in space of the Earth. Uh, it was taken on the Apollo 8 mission uh, and really is, in 68 as part of what launched the environmental, that, that image, that shift to seeing the Earth from space is what helped launch the environmental movement. Go science, right? We actually sent people into space, they took a picture of the Earth, you know, helped launch the environment. It's part of what science can do. So he says, I, I still feel that thrill when I see that picture of Earth from space. And he says, he continues though, then I recall some of what that globe contains. Acidifying seas, climate refugees, resource wars, and alongside these human harms, hundreds of reminders that nature does not love us or want us to be happy. Right, it's what Tennyson called nature red in tooth and claw, Lyme disease, birth defects, the everyday theater of wild suffering. From the house coat hunting, from the house, um, house cat hunting, house cats hunting birds in the backyard, to coyotes bringing down a terrified deer, to the thousands of ticks that can immiserate and exhaust an unlucky moose in the rocky heat of the Rocky Mountain summer. There is no harmony per se waiting for us on this globe, at least none on the scale that fits our lives, our pleasures, our pains, our passions, but the blue, but that blue marble, on the infinite black background is still the only possible home for everything, for everything that we love. All those things are true. And so through all the evolutionary contingencies of 13.8 billion years, we find ourselves here on the third rock from the sun, on the edge of one spiral galaxy that's one of more than two trillion galaxies in the universe. And we know too much about our peripheral place in the universe and about the six previous mass extinctions that have happened on this planet to pretend that we can just do whatever we want on this planet and it's just going to definitely be okay. It may not be. Love can win sometimes. In the end, 
entropy wins, right? But what are we going to do in the meantime? Uh, those dire possibilities are all true, and both the sheer beauty of this planet and the promise of what we can and have accomplished together as a species is more than enough to motivate me to continue in the struggle for social, economic, and environmental justice here and now. And I really mean that, that whenever you get overwhelmed, especially by climate change, I encourage you, don't just stay inside and curl up in the fetal position, or do the fetal position for a while, and then <laughs> go outside. Allow yourself to be refreshed by nature. Allow yourself to be reminded by nature of why we can't stop fighting for social, economic, and environmental justice. It's too beautiful, and it's too precious out there. Part of why we're here together on this day after Earth Day is that we don't have to figure out a way forward alone. In the words of Kathleen Moore, who I quoted earlier about all those warning labels we need to put on our sources of fossil fuels, she's, her, one of her favorite sayings is, what can one person do? Each one person can stop being one person. Get together. Together we can accomplish far more than any of us can do alone. But I don't want to even end there. Rather, I want to invite you to give you just a taste of a practice that you can take with you as you're going out in nature, maybe, to refresh yourself, or really anywhere, because this can be done inside as well. It's a practice called earth breathing. It's from the Buddhist teacher Reggie Ray, and the goal is to cultivate a taste of a felt existential experience of what our UU Seventh Principle calls the interdependent web of all existence. So if you're comfortable doing so, I invite you to assume a seated meditation posture, your feet flat on the floor, sitting up straight with your shoulders down. Allow yourself to be both relaxed and yet alert. Resting your hands comfortably on your thighs. If you're comfortable doing so, I invite you to close your eyes, or if you'd like, you can look out the window. Let your tongue relax in your mouth or touch your upper palate lightly, and take in a deep breath. In through your nose, and out. Keep breathing, allowing your breath to slow and deepen. Notice how your chair is supporting you. If you feel any tightness in your stomach or abdominal muscles or other places in your body, invite them to begin relaxing. Open yourself to the arising and passing of each new present moment and of your embodied nature within it. Now invite you to gently shift your attention a foot or two underneath you. And then visualize your attention descending down into the earth, into the foundation of this building, and then lower and lower into the earth itself. Keep your attention there, and then on the in-breath, See what it might feel like to try to bring that energy of the earth up into your body. And on the out-breath, let it go. Some of you may understand this practice more metaphorically. Others of you may experience it quite literally. Both ways are fine. As you breathe, keep your attention below you in the earth. Open yourself to the sheer massiveness of the earth beneath you.
Breathe in that vastness up into your heart, into your torso, into yourself. Continue to take a few more deep breaths. Feel the peace of the earth. Breathe in that peace, letting it permeate your body. And breathe out that peace as your intention for living more simply in the world. invite you to begin returning your attention to the room, but also invite you to bring that felt sense of connection to the earth into the singing of this hymn, to see if you can keep that connection, experiment with that, even as we prepare to sing Blue Boat Home. Turn to hymn 1060 floor, please rise and body your spirit. Amen. 